0: This podcast is sponsored by Keiko New Energy, the fastest-growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko's been in business for more than 100 years, and it's been making superior German quality PV inverters since the 1990s. It's been manufacturing many of them right in the U.S., in San Antonio, Texas, since 2013. With a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility-scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market making it the preferred brand across the U.S. and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at keiko-newenergy.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. We've had a week now to let the media digest Trump's climate trolling. EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt's been all over the airwaves defending the decision to withdraw from Paris. And journalists have been all over the administration for its loose relationship with the facts. We'll look at how Paris has played out in the press. Then, after killing that metering, Nevada is suddenly back on the table as one of the most important solar markets, and now potentially one of the most important storage markets. An overview of the stunning reversal in the Silver State. And finally, we'll talk about a new report warning of a coming auto industry death spiral. Jigger and Catherine Hamilton are with me, as always. Catherine's in Washington, D.C. Hello. Hi. Consumed by James Comey? Uh,
1: Yes, I've been obsessed. I watched up to the the moment we started taping. And evidently they go in at 1 p.m. right after we're done taping into closed session. But I think I've seen, I saw most of the public.
0: And you haven't really prepared for the show. You've just been watching those hearings.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I am totally winging it, guys. If
0: there's ever a time to use the DVR, (laughs) this is the time. That's right, that's right. (laughs) That other voice you heard... Is uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. He moved back to Washington, D.C. It's Jigger Shaw. And, and Jigger is actually in the middle of a room with a microphone on a box with nothing around him. Paint the scene for us right now.
2: Well, it's a room, I think they call it the workout room, but nothing of the sort will be happening in this room. And uh, <laughs> it's downstairs and it has like two glass doors, so I should be able to look out while I'm supposedly on my treadmill. But I am on that version getting a treadmill desk. So that's getting delivered tomorrow. (laughs) Well, you know, we need
0: your energy level. So the more that you exercise, the less energy you're going to have to argue with me. So (laughs) don't exercise, okay? (laughs) Okay, well, while the rest of the country, I guess maybe just folks in DC, refocus their attention today on former FBI Director James Comey and the Russia hacking investigation, we're going to revisit last week's blockbuster news that America is pulling out of the Paris climate deal. But rather than litigate every last detail, which will probably lead us into an argument about how much the decision actually means, I think we're going to talk mostly about framing here. So how did the White House spin this in the following days? And how did the press push back or enable that framing? So we've all been diligently reading and watching the TV and reading the newspaper, and we're going to talk about our favorite pieces of coverage. And then I think we'll use that to talk about broader narratives about the Paris decision. So Catherine, what caught your eye? What was uh, some of your favorite coverage?
1: Well, it was funny because right after it happened, we taped. It was kind of late in the day, and I went home, and my husband, who has been an environmental um, advocate for years, said, did you read Grunwald and Roberts? And I was like, I haven't had time to read anything. (laughs) So I read Grunwald and Roberts, and those were actually two really good pieces to start with. And some of this is sort of reinforcing my own thoughts about it. Certainly, you're going to read things that you like and that reinforce your own beliefs, but... For um, those who may not know, she's yes. referring
0: to Mike Grunwald and David Roberts, both of whom have been on this podcast. Mike Grunwald writes for Politico magazine. David Roberts writes for Vox.
1: Right. So Grunwald's piece in Politico uh, really was a short and interesting, pithy piece about uh, Trump's reason was for pulling out were really to give the middle finger to the world and to fulfill a campaign promise. So that was not completely dissimilar from the narrative that, you know, we had originally kind of latched onto during our show. Um, Dave Roberts in Vox, he sort of went through what were the five biggest deceptions. On Twitter at the time, in real time, he said, I'll let you know when I hear something true. And he just like couldn't tweet after that. But um, because he didn't think there was anything true that the president said. But so there were kind of five big things that he landed on that Paris can't be non-binding and draconian at the same time, that it it isn't binding. It is not a binding agreement. So you can't then claim that it's going to do damage if it's not binding. The second one is that it cannot be renegotiated, which it can't. I mean, everybody comes with their own targets and you can change your targets or do whatever you want with your targets. It's really just a way to bring everybody together and to agree on things. Um, The third thing is it will not cost $3 trillion. This was a a report that's been really carefully sussed out from the National Economic Research Associates, this group that is funded um, by people who are opposed to anything, any kind of climate change mitigation. So he kind of went through that. And then he also said China, India are not getting away with anything. You can look at what they're doing and they're taking real advantage, economic advantage of clean energy to reduce their emissions. And then the final thing that he really pointed to is that no one is laughing at us, that, that this issue that doing anything on climate is this zero-sum game is just the wrong way to look at it, that it's really something that is global and local. So it's something that doesn't just affect everybody, but that everybody can then participate in their own way, however they want to do it. So it's not really a zero-sum game. So he just thought that the whole narrative um, was really wrongly constructed. Um, The other things to keep me sane were I listened to a podcast. I listened to a lot of podcasts. Uh, Pod Save America had Brian Deason, who had worked uh, and negotiated the climate agreement originally in the Obama White House. And his explanation was so good and concise and clear. So that was good to listen to. Um, And then, and then finally, the thing that I, another thing I latched onto was Pete Souza was the chief official White House photographer in the Reagan and Obama White Houses. And he has an Instagram feed, which is amazing. He's a, an incredible photographer. He mostly uses natural light, tries not to get people posing, and has taken some of the most iconic photographs in those two um, administrations. And he did a whole series after the Paris announcement um, of This Land Is Your Land, showing pictures of President Obama and his family in various places all around the world that showed that kind of went with the lyrics of, you know, of of this land is your land. And I found that really kind of touching and really fulfilling to look at. So that was those were the things I focused on right after this announcement.
0: Yeah, I didn't see the this land is your land series. But thumbs up to Grunewald's piece and to Dave Roberts piece. Dave Roberts, you know, had one of the first fact checking pieces, since the um, actual announcement, a bunch of major outlets have done some pretty serious fact-checking, including fact-checking of the post-announcement media appearances, and I think we'll get to those. But Roberts was kind of first on the scene and had a very good accounting of the amount of BS that came out of the president's mouth, um, both specific numbers and actual framing. And then Grinwald's piece was fantastic, and I think he nailed it. Very, very clearly nailed it. This is about trolling the rest of the world. And he writes... What Trump can do is remind his supporters and everyone else on the planet which side he's on, and more to the point, which side he's fighting. He's taking a shirts-and-skins stand against liberals, against goo-goos, against condescending scolds and Birkenstocks who don't like styrofoam or hulking SUVs or real Americans, against naive globalists who want the U.S. to suck up to the French and the Chinese and the United Nations. This is all about taking on the intellectual globalist elite. And uh, I thought Grunwald's piece did the best uh, in framing that.
1: Yeah. What if the meetings had not been in Paris? What if they had been in Pittsburgh and everybody had come together in Pittsburgh? Would they be saying, is Pittsburgh good or bad for the U.S.? I mean, that's what they're saying. They're using Paris as this sort of symbol of of everything that we shouldn't be.
0: So, Jigger, what was your story or stories? What kind of coverage grabbed you?
2: Well, so I obviously um, gravitated more towards the sort of what next stuff, um, So I think the first piece that grabbed me was it was a great piece I thought written by the young professionals in foreign energy, sorry, foreign policy that actually like laid out why this really was a treaty and probably did need to be submitted to the Senate. So I think that that I think that like really did have um, an effect on me because I really do think that in this country we are sort of expecting the president to become the imperial president and less um, about forcing them to go through the Senate. So. Um, I thought that was a great piece written by Sam uh, Malopoulos.
0: Wait, can you give me a little bit more detail? What's the exact argument?
2: Well, to the extent that, that a document that's international in nature has any mandatory elements, which in this case, you have to submit your carbon reduction plan, it has to be approved, etc. Um, then their section, you know, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the Constitution stipulates that the president has to get the advice and consent of the Senate to to ratify it, right? And I think that The Obama administration made the case well because it's non-binding and because we can change it at any time, like it doesn't matter. We don't have to go through the Senate, and I think that I think it really does have to go through the Senate. And I think we all want it to go through the Senate. We want it to be a treaty. We want it to actually have the the force of the entire United States government, not the force of an executive order. And so that's why uh, President Trump was able to just unwind it very quickly. Now he technically can't get out for four years and all that stuff, right? But because the Paris Climate Agreement, you know, didn't have a lot of teeth to it initially, is the reason why we could get in, and then I think the other pieces that I think have come out since then is sort of the "We Are Still In" uh, work, which is WeAreStillIn.org or .com, which was started by Bloomberg, and and I think that that's actually a really good outcome that came out of this. I think a lot of cities, towns, and states were half assing. Uh, their climate commitments. And, you know, like, I think since this um, exit by President Trump over the last, um, you know, week or so, you're seeing a lot of folks, including Jerry Brown, really taking his job as governor much more seriously than he did before that, around actually figuring out how to reduce and take specific actions to reduce climate emissions. And you've got 13 states now in all that have um, joined an alliance to, you know, really work hard on making this a major issue.
0: Yeah, I think Jerry Brown was actually in China when President Trump made his announcement. And in in a day later, he had a meeting with Chinese officials about climate change. And he had a great appearance on Michael Barbaro's New York Times, The Daily Podcast, which I highly recommend for folks. They've done some excellent coverage post Paris and actually had a really nice segment leading up to the announcement. And they interviewed Jerry Brown uh, yesterday or a couple days ago, I can't remember the exact day now, but he was on the road and he talked about how he sees himself as a climate diplomat and other local leaders now see themselves as a much more important party to the agreement. That Where Trump steps aside, they're going to come in and actually work with international leaders to prove that the U.S. isn't walking away.
2: Which really wasn't true before Trump exited the Paris Accord, right? Before Trump You know, exit of the Paris Accord, you had Governor Cuomo of New York saying we're going to do 50 percent renewable energy, etc. But now you actually like see Jay Inslee and and many others like actually saying, here's exactly how we're going to decarbonize. We're embarrassed that we haven't done so to date. And we're going to do a lot more because we get the fact that this needs to be taken seriously in a way that they didn't before Trump came out of the Paris Agreement.
0: Yeah, this should be really heartening to people, too. I mean, look, of course we want the president to say to the rest of the world that we care about this problem, but we have almost every other important official in the U.S., both in the military and in politics coming out and saying that they support this agreement and they're going to do everything they can to live up to it. And ultimately, what we need is localized action anyway. And we need local leaders to be held accountable to hit these targets. And so, you know, now they feel a lot more responsibility. And ultimately, this is a good thing. And it looks like we can start to get pretty close to our voluntary commitment. So, you know, I think we have to put this all into perspective. And there is a lot of positive that's coming out of this, despite, you know, the big middle finger to the world.
2: Yeah. And Justin Gillis, I think, wrote a really great piece on this um, with Nadia Popovich and the New York Times on the 6th around in Trump country, renewable energy is thriving, basically talking about how the vast majority of solar and wind projects in the U.S. are really coming in red districts. Um, And so, you know, like trying to counter that narrative um, that this is a sort of coastal elite issue.
1: Yeah. And I think that since the majority of Americans like 60% opposed pulling out, um, I think that it shows that there's, and, and this has really exposed even more vast public support. I mean, I'm hearing more talking about climate change than I have in a really long time. And I think what this gets to is we have a really big problem on our hands. It's a global problem. And so often when we have really big problems, we think we need a really, really big solution. But this kind of shows that actually we can have a whole lot of smaller local and state solutions that'll get us to the same place. Yeah.
2: I mean, I, after I wrote my piece on LinkedIn about this, I got a lot of calls from mayors and others that had, written, had that had signed on. I mean, you know, when you look at like Little Rock, Arkansas, or, you know, Columbia, Missouri, you know, I mean, like when you look at Columbia, Missouri, they have their own municipal utility. And, and they actually passed an RPS back in 2008 that they've never followed through on. And so like, you know, part of my critique of them is I was like, look, feel free to sign the petition. But you know, get to work, right? When you have your own municipal utility, you can copy what Austin Energy and the folks in San Antonio have done and actually like, you know, sign big PPAs for wind and solar farms, right? Like stop complaining and get to work. You haven't done LED lighting. I was shocked to learn that only 28.2% of new lighting fixtures last year, according to the advanced energy economy, were LED. I mean, it should be 80% now given, you know, where the cost of LEDs are.
0: This has also given journalists an opportunity to talk about the reality on the ground, and the Washington Post this week is out with a really important story on Pittsburgh, which is of course a city that got a lot of te- a lot of attention after the president's speech because he said, "I want to, you know, do this for the people of Pittsburgh, not the people of Paris," which was an applause line, but actually um, very divorced from reality because Pittsburgh, for the last decade, has been trying to, um, you know, I- improve its economy after the collapse of the steel industry to walk away from coal as well. And they've done a lot to, to attract high tech companies. You know, Uber's got a testing center there. They've done a lot to attract wind manufacturing. And, um, you know, there are 13,000 renewable energy jobs in Pittsburgh alone, and tens of thousands of jobs throughout Pennsylvania. And so Washington Post did a great story on um, the, the actual reality of what Pittsburgh has been doing under Governor Bill Peduto and, you know, his reaction and other people's reactions to the president's speech. And, and one, uh, you know, political scientist in, in Pittsburgh said you could almost hear the jaws drop across the geographic area when Trump said that applause line because people were like, what that, you know, that's not us.
1: Yeah, Department of Energy recognized Pittsburgh as one of the most sustainable cities in the country.
2: Yeah, but like, I mean, Catherine, we have to all be realistic about this stuff, right? Pennsylvania is not even close to being um, a leader in this area compared to its peers, right? I mean, you know, Ed Rendell gave that big speech at the National Press Club about how Pennsylvania was going to lead on renewable energy 10 years ago. And you know they're basically the leader in natural gas fracking. I mean, the largest wind farms, solar farms are not in Pennsylvania. I'm just not going to give people credit for for not reducing their carbon right. But emissions. Pittsburgh is different right? than the rest of the I mean, state. You know, <laughs> Pittsburgh's different. It's not. Look, I mean, like, I just look. I mean, I want to love all these people. I love when people give great speeches. I love when people bring in, like, you know, a large manufacturer like Gamesa into their state. But the bottom line here is that we have to reduce carbon emissions at scale. We do not have time left. Our entire carbon budget will be utilized globally in the next 20 years. Right I mean this is just like at this point we're just like moving deck chairs around on the Titanic Yeah titan- but I'm
0: not talking about loving these people I'm just saying who would you rather you know who would you rather trust the person who says yeah this is a problem and we're doing what we can to get universities and citizens involved in companies you know moving here to develop clean technologies or the guy who you know throws up his middle finger to the rest of the world and says this problem doesn't exist Maybe
2: Maybe the latter, right? I mean, if 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 him getting out of the pace, no, no. If him getting out of the Paris Agreement means that all of these mayors and all of these governors and God knows how many institutions of higher education have signed this thing, actually get their head out of their ass and sign a PPA, replace their buses with electric buses, get in LED lighting figure out how to do big data without like just talking about it and, and shuffling deck chairs, but actually awarding contracts to companies that are almost going to go out of business because they haven't gotten one in the last five years. I will give Trump a medal.
0: I did want to mention my other favorite piece of coverage, which was on Fox News Sunday when Chris Wallace grilled EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. And this entire interview was really good. Um, Wallace's questions are good at least. Pruitt dodged a bunch of of those questions. There are a couple good moments, particularly when Wallace accuses Pruitt of protecting the horse and buggy business, which was a good line. So let's hear a a couple of minutes of tape from that back and forth, which is pretty compelling.
3: But the study that the president cited was funded by two groups that are dramatically opposed to environmental regulation and the study itself acknowledges it does, and this is a quote from the study, it does not take into account potential benefits from avoided emissions. The study results are not a benefit cost analysis of climate change well, there were several the th- it is a worst case scenario there's there's several studies that were
4: actually published in response to paris NIRA, uh, the heritage study the global policy publication NERA. there were several in, in, in that were sourced uh, aspects as far as his speech and and what we know from uh, the paris agreement objectively is that it was a two-and-a-half trillion dollar contraction to our economy over ten years. What we do know is it impacted up to 400,000 jobs in this country. What we do know is it impacted both the manufacturing base and energy sector jobs. You know, since last the fourth quarter of 2016, Chris, we've had almost 50,000 jobs created in the mining and and, and coal sector alone. In fact, in the month of May, almost 7,000 jobs. So so these individuals that are saying, and I think what's also being missed here is that, that when you look at our how we generate electricity in this country, the power grid, we need fuel diversity. We need coal, natural gas, hydro, renewables, uh, nuclear as part of that mix because it provides stability and strength to our grid and lower costs. Our price per kilowatt compared to Germany, our price per kilowatt compared to Europe is far better and it helps us grow jobs in this country.
3: But Mr. Pruitt, aren't you focusing on the wrong thing? I want to put up some I must say surprising statistics. Take a look at this. The U.S. now employs more than double the number of people in the solar industry that it does in coal. Aren't you and the President talking about protecting the horse and buggy business just as cars come online?
4: Absolutely not, because as I just indicated, we need coal, we need need solid hydrocarbons stored on site, at utility companies across this country to address something uh, attacks on our grid attacks on infrastructure if we have peak demand needs you want a diversity of fuels that generate uh, electricity it is it, but, is, I mean, bad is, the it is bad business for the president a president about to, to limit the, the president
3: talks about protecting the people of pittsburgh the mayor of pittsburgh said we're not a steel town anymore. We're a green town. And in fact, he rejected what the president said. And the mayor of Pittsburgh, the city he specifically cited, said, we're going to comply with a Paris climate accord. This president has said Um, we truly need... Since
0: that interview, the the press has debunked the 50,000 coal jobs created stat that Pruitt threw out there. He's been on a bunch of different... Network shows, and he's thrown that number out a ton of times. And, you know, there are actually 50,000 coal mining jobs total in the US. He was confusing a few different numbers. Uh, Wallace in that clip didn't exactly catch him on that, but his pushback on solar jobs was, I think, a pretty important moment. And that. that, Oh, it
2: was extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, just an extraordinary moment to have Chris Wallace actually verify that the solar industry has been the job creation engine of the last eight years is amazing.
0: And and uh, the stat that there are double the number of sol jo- solar jobs as coal jobs is now getting plastered everywhere. This is another, um, you know, unforeseen consequence, if you want to call it that. I mean, this is, you know, the Trump administration is forcing everyone to take a look at the jobs picture. And now journalists are saying, oh, wait, wait a second, there are more jobs in just wind and solar alone than in coal, gas and oil extraction combined. This is a real thing. And networks, the biggest networks and cable television outlets are plastering that stat everywhere.
1: Yeah. And I would just say another thing that's really important that's that's a little more on the dorky side, but, and, and, you know, we know this decision was very political and very much based on, you know, political drivers and campaign issues. Um, There's also a, a real need to make sure that we're using the right words and the right facts when we talk about things. So the European Parliament has put together this site on terminology coordination, which is like using the right terminology to help save the planet. And they really break down what all of these issues are, how they're defined, how to think about and talk. Well, not necessarily think about things, but how to talk about about climate change and what does anthropogenic mean and all these things that we that those of us who are embedded in it kind of throw around, but it's really important to kind of level set and make sure we're all using the right words. I don't know how
0: much monitoring you all did of the conservative press, but I, you know, read Breitbart and The Daily Caller regularly to see how they're covering these issues. And there are a few different themes that I picked up on and how they covered this. Um. One was the hypocrisy theme. They like to point out that you know the liberal elites who once hated the Paris climate deal are now criticizing Trump for pulling out of it. They look to investors in India and China who are you know still putting money into fossil fuels. So these countries stood up and said, "We stand by the deal." And one of the biggest mining companies in India invested in an Australian mine. They reported on that. Um, Uh, Ted Cruz tweeted about Elon Musk flying in a corporate jet, and Breitbart picked that up and turned it into kind of a meme. Um, You know, they're reporting on corporate cronyism. They're pushing this idea that large corporations benefit directly from Paris because they're backing renewable energy, and they're doing some gymnastics to tie tax credits to the Paris deal and basically say that companies like Apple that are supporting the Paris deal are just doing it for their own self-interest. And then, of course, they see this as Trump making good on his campaign promise. So this is really all about Trump telling his supporters that I am the Trump that you voted for. Those were some of the main themes that I've picked up on over the last week.
2: Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think and many many of it's and, and much of it is consistent with what folks said during the campaign. I, you know, for me, the sad thing is, is that we're the ones creating blue collar manufacturer and and service jobs within the red, you know, districts have voted for Trump. Um, you know, not anything that Donald Trump is doing.
0: Well, again, I will say that this is forcing that conversation in the press, and um, most outlets are recognizing that the vast majority of jobs have been created in renewable energy. And so the onus is on the president to now prove that his policies can create jobs. And we all know that the market forces that are out there are not going to change the situation much. And in fact, that the jobs in the renewable sector are just going to accelerate. So that will become clearer and clearer. It's that moment in the show when we put a stop to the tape and recognize our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. Thank you, Keiko. Keiko. Keiko is one of the fastest-growing inverter companies in the Americas, a direct result of its commitment to quality, top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a massive portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility-scale applications. Leading developers continue to choose Keiko because of its superior engineering and its unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas— where 20% of its employees are U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production throughout the Americas. You can learn more about Keiko's inverter models and its commitment to quality at keiko-newenergy.com. Thanks again to Keiko for supporting this show. Now back to our conversation. Let's move over to Nevada. Nevada is back. In December of 2015, regulators there pulled the plug on net metering, causing the state's residential solar market to collapse. National solar installers abruptly left, and installation numbers plummeted. Now, a year and a half later, legislators have reversed that decision. A new bill just passed will bring a modified version of net metering back, and Tesla Solar and Sunrun have already said they're returning to the state. Meanwhile, the Nevada Assembly passed another bill beefing up the state's renewable portfolio standard to 40% and providing a multiplier for energy storage, positioning the state as a potential leader overnight in storage. And we'll talk a bit about that policy as well, which, I mean, puts Nevada on par with states like California and, and New York. So on net metering, Jigger, how significant is this, this turnaround and, and what does it mean for the politics in the state for solar?
2: Well, I think it's a big deal, and I think it's important for our listeners to know that we called it, right? I mean, this was basically a coup attempt by the Nevada Utilities Commission and the Nevada Power Utility Company weeks after the Nevada legislature closed for business two years ago because they only meet every two years. And I think we said at the time that this was basically them taking advantage of that loophole to create chaos in the market. And that as soon as the Nevada legislature went back into session, they would fix this. And this is exactly what they did, is they fixed it. Um, the thing that I thought was fascinating, though, was that they didn't just extend net, net metering like California basically did. They actually have this um, drop-off in the value of net metered kilowatt hours as net metering becomes a larger and larger percentage of the total um, you know, uh, capacity in the state, which I thought was pretty forward-thinking on their part.
0: Yeah, Jigger's rule of thumb for for uh, incentives is volumetric step changes so this kind of does that right so you yeah. get uh, as a solar customer you get 95% of retail rate for net metering for over 20 years and then every 80 megawatts there is a decrease um and i think it goes all the way down to 75% of the retail rate so it's it's a version of the kind of step changes you've been talking
1: about and it has twenty years of grandfathering built in as well. And there are a bunch of other things. There are consumer protections. There's a built a solar bill of rights built in. Um, I talked to the folks at Sunrun about how this all kind of went down, and you know they were they were talking about all the people that you mentioned that were supportive and working on the ground. But when I asked you know who was opposed, they said no one expressed public opposition that this was just demanded by the voters so this was something that got 38 to 2 in the assembly and and full unanimous support of all 21 in the senate uh, which is significant this is something that you know once you get it out there the grassroots can support it
2: well and i think that one of the reasons for that is because if you remember nevada uh, passed an, an amendment uh, during the presidential election that basically called for the, the utility companies losing their monopoly license to operate in the state. Now, they have to pass such an amendment twice to make it enforce, And so they'll have a chance to pass it again in the next uh, election or the election after that. But I think it's important to note that the utilities are put on notice with a gun to their head saying, look, if you don't stop like being more friendly to customers, we will strip you of your monopoly.
0: You know, the big piece of news here has to be this storage target, target which um, is unique. And, you know, no state has really tied storage to its RPS. And storage can account for 10% of this 40% target and they've got this two times multiplier for storage so you know if you use um, any type of storage system you get double the credit for it. Catherine anything you want to say about that as our resident storage policy expert?
1: Yeah, I was I was shocked and grateful because I've been tying myself in knots trying to figure out how would you do storage in an RPS because certainly on a federal level you have to like figure out what's the mix of renewables on the grid and that's going to change over time and then what part of that is storage being charged from and you know what's the multiplier. So if they just do this straight up, they're going to create a market there and then they can worry about Later, what's <laughs> on the grid? I think they've they've got enough renewables out there that they can create this target that's pretty specific to renewables and and see how it unfolds. I have not been able to make that happen on the federal level, so and we certainly we haven't had a federal RPS. But every time I've tried to figure out how you put storage in, it became way more complicated. And uh, this seems to be a simple solution for now.
2: Well, you know, I think it's it's important to note that Nevada's done a lot of progressive stuff this session. I mean, they also passed Sprinkle Care, which was. Uh, Um, you know, like Medicare for all uh, bill as well, which the governor is expected to sign. So I think they're doing a lot of really interesting stuff on the the storage piece. You know, honestly, like I think it's interesting that they passed it. It's not surprising, given that the gigafactory is there. But um, but it does sound really hard to finance. It feels like all of the revenue streams that they're projecting here are fully merchant. And so I'm trying to figure out how, you know, someone would finance, you know, such a cash flow stream.
0: And also, as I understand it, Catherine, maybe you can clarify this as well, there will be compensation for um, load shifting during peaks. Do you know how that's gonna work?
1: Yeah, um, they're gonna do a pilot storage rate and they haven't come out with exactly what that looks like that I've seen, but that's, uh, I don't know if it's gonna be TOU, something like that though, to to pilot what that would look like. So that'll be interesting because I think that could then be replicated if it works.
2: Well, I take a lot of solace from the fact that we just poked Warren Buffett in the eye.
0: <laughs> How did we poke Warren Buffett? Because he just doesn't he like the owns, distributed stuff?
2: Yeah, he hates distributed stuff. And all the CEOs of the electric utilities that he owns hates the distributed stuff. And so I'm glad that we're able to you know, show that he's actually not that powerful in these states.
0: Well, if you remember, after that net metering decision, there was that Bloomberg Business cover with Warren Buffett and Elon Musk wrestling, which was, I think, one of my favorite covers of all time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's turn finally to a recent report that came out on the auto industry, or I guess more appropriately, it's the potential collapse of the auto industry. A few weeks ago, the internet was buzzing with a new prediction. By 2031, 95% of all passenger miles traveled will be in autonomous electric vehicles. That prediction comes from James Arbib and Tony Siba of RethinkX, a Silicon Valley think tank focused on all the buzzwords, disruption, business model innovation, and network effects. These two futurists conclude that we're at the beginning of a very steep adoption S-curve for autonomous electric cars, which could basically unravel traditional automakers that aren't focused on mobility services. And we'll discuss the that scenario itself on whether automakers are prepared. They put the tipping point at 2021 when they believe autonomous cars will start hitting the road in a big way and say it's going to take a decade to slash America's current car fleet from 250 million to 44 million and again serve 95% of miles traveled with autonomous transportation as a service. Jigger, what do you make of this brave new automotive world that these gentlemen have painted?
2: So I think, you know, I've said previously that I certainly believe in the constructs of what they put together. I I frankly don't love Tony Siba's work as much as I like other people's work because I feel like his numbers are generally made up on the back of a napkin. Um, like, I don't think 44 million cars is going to work. I, I, I just think that he completely, like, sort of just didn't think through what the ramifications of that would be, particularly cultural ramifications, given that even though there's a lot less car enthusiasts today than there were, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, there's still a lot of car enthusiasts left left. But I I do think from a different angle that 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 this future is a reality, which is that like for a long time I've thought that computers were basically better drivers than humans. You know, humans want to eat while they're driving, shave while they're driving, put on makeup while they're driving, you know, like you know figure out a way to get their kid to stop crying while they're driving. And so I think autonomous vehicles makes a lot of sense from the insurance industry's point of view. And I think the insurance insurance industry, once it gets fully comfortable with computers driving, will push AVs in a huge way through insurance premiums. And I think aging baby boomers who don't want to give up their driver's licenses and millennials who are completely uninterested in driving and owning will actually push this market in 2030. I just think that 44 million cars seems completely not thought out.
0: It's a really low number. And I actually read an analysis in Seeking Alpha today. One analyst put it, he called that number pure lunacy and said that we'd probably need somewhere around 150 million cars rather than the 44 million cars. Just because of logistics, when you think about peak travel during, you know, say the morning or evening commutes. The logistics of putting 44 million cars on the road to serve, you know, a few hundred million or a couple hundred million, you know, 250 million people is um, is pretty ridiculous.
1: But it's good to see a report that's aspirational. What what I read it and say to myself, one is like, this will be a good world when we go to something with fewer cars and, and um, self-driving vehicles that people like my children who have disabilities who would probably not be able to drive will be able to drive. Um, but also the political reality. You thought uh, Stephen the Horse and Buggy Movement had uh, had something to say against the the brand new automobile when it came into existence. Well, the automobiles, the concessionaires, all those gas stations along the highways—those guys are going to have a lot to say about this and about the reduction in vehicles. So, you know, I'm looking for like where the fight's going to happen. Um, what is Matthew McGonaughey going to do? <laughs> um, <laughs> That's funny. and then. And then the other thing, though, is that you look at, and we've talked about the Ray and others who are looking at You know, how do we think differently about roads? So if cars start drying up, the highway trust fund starts drying up because you don't have people paying gas tax that then help build the roads. So we have to figure out some other way to fund the highway trust fund, whether that's, you know, building solar on rights of way and being able to profiting profit from solar arrays or other renewables on the sides of roads that get then go toward, you know, funding road development. But this is a whole ecosystem that's changing and I think it's changing um a lot faster than than we think it is.
0: You know, in their model they point out s- smart thermostats as a potential disruptor. First of all, Catherine, I actually agree with with what you just said there. I think we need to have an aspirational report. The big question is whether the auto industry is prepared for it, and I do want to talk about the preparedness of the auto industry. But first, I think their example about smart thermostats as a, as a disruptive technology is off you know we've had smart thermostats for twenty years, and out of the one hundred and seventeen million homes in this country, seventeen million of them have some kind of smart device, mostly a smart thermostat so the the number of smart thermostats in this country are, are pretty low and we're just beginning beginning to figure out what to do with them after 20 years of use and i just i don't know like pointing to a technology like a smart thermostat as a potential disruptor seems off to me as you know a proxy for what could happen in the auto industry because consumers just aren't aren't using them in mass and we really haven't figured out the best ways to use them yet
2: this is no mckinsey report um i just i feel like on the automaker side You know, I mean, this is so typical, right? I mean, these types of companies, um, you know, are technology innovators, but at at some point they actually hit their sort of max velocity, which is where most of these companies are today, right? And, And once you hit that max velocity, then the question is, can you really upend your entire company to be relevant in the future? And that's just really hard to do. I mean, saying to a car company that you're no longer going to be a car company, you're now going to be a transportation services company. That's just really, really hard, and I don't think a five hundred million dollar investment by g m into Lyft is gonna you know is gonna save g m
0: right um, but we have seen some more aggressive technology roadmaps from these companies, and roughly their their perspective on autonomous vehicle preparedness is in line with what they're saying in this report, so you know probably a few years behind schedule, but the the folks who wrote this report say you know, Arbib and Siba say that 2021 is the big bang disruption moment. You know, when transportation as a service is readily, widely available, and most automakers are kind of thinking in that time frame too.
2: No, no, I'm not saying that they're going to collapse at this moment. What I'm saying is that. It's not about the autonomous technology, right? That's going to eventually become an Android type technology that Google owns or somebody else owns and everyone will get licensed to it. But it's it's more about what are you telling Houston, Texas, right? Like when you go to Houston and over 50% of all of their land mass has been given for free to the auto industry. So if you actually do a GIS map of of Houston, Texas and count all the square footage by the roads, the parking lots, the parking garages, all that stuff. There's close to 50 percent of the entire landmass of Houston that's not paying any property taxes, right? I mean, that's gargantuan in terms of its subsidy. So when Uber comes to Houston and says, hey, we can actually give that back to you, Houston. We can actually give all of that square footage back to you for apartment buildings and other things that you can build that'll actually generate a lot more property tax revenue, etc. What side of the fence is GM and Ford going to be on? They're going to be on the wrong side of that fence because they want to keep their car sales going for five more years because it matters to them, right? And that's the problem with disruptors, right? Is that like, ultimately, it's so hard to destroy your your legacy business in its totality, because most of the inertia of the company wants it to last just a few more years.
1: Sounds like you're talking about utilities.
2: Oh, wait a second.
1: (laughs) What were we talking about again?
0: (laughs) Well, I think that wraps up that part of the conversation. And we are in the final leg. Let's tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine Hamilton, what's your story?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to promote or mention another podcast um, because there's some people who love getting really, really into the weeds on FERC stuff. And I have something for you. And it's not just listening to me. This is um, Allison Clements, who used to work for NRDC and now has her own consulting firm, Good Grid in Salt Lake City. She started a new podcast called Grid Geeks, And she gets really into the weeds on FERC and other issues. So she has two episodes out so far, one on renewables and reliability, dealing with the the Perry report, and the other on wholesale markets and state policies. And these are great because they are really deep dives into these issues that we just don't have time to do, but it's worth going to iTunes or another app and looking up Grid Geeks. There
0: is an explosion of podcasts out there. I haven't heard Grid Geeks yet, but there are a bunch of – energy podcasts that are emerging and it's nice to see the sphere expanding jigger what do you got
2: so our good friend um richard meyer who is um um, at the you know american natural gas association um you know was was tweeting about uh, the energy information administration putting out a lot of its very very detailed data on households um so 5.9 million households have pool heaters um, and only zero point seven eight percent of them are actually solar powered, which I thought was shocking. I thought pool heaters had a much higher percentage of solar.
0: Yeah, well, that was the market that basically held the solar industry up for yeah. years in California, right? It was yeah. all solar pool heaters.
2: Yeah, but you know they've been they've gotten nowhere. So that's interesting. Huh, the other in- interesting thing is that um, is that so many people have um, electric water heating. I mean, it's just massive how many electric water heaters out there. I can't find the data right now, but like, um, and the electric water heaters are actually much worse for the planet than just, you know, uh, generating hot water through natural gas. Um, And so it's interesting to see how, like, you know, how much legacy hardware we have to go out and fix.
0: Well, big announcement from GTM, which is actually a few weeks old, and I didn't mention it on the podcast until now. Our parent company, Wood Mackenzie acquired Make Consulting, which is a Danish wind uh, analytics and consulting firm, and they just go super deep on markets around the world and into both onshore and offshore wind. So we're thrilled to bring them on the team, and, and we've been meeting with them and learning about, you know, their analysis techniques and their thoughts on the wind market. So GTM itself will be learning a lot from Make and Ramping up our wind coverage in the coming months and, um, you know, really utilizing their expertise to make us a player in the wind sector. All right, folks, that does it. Thanks so much for for being with us. Send us your ideas to podcasts at greentechmedia.com or just send us a tweet. Uh, You can find us everywhere that you listen to podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, NPR One, or grab our RSS feed and just uh, find us on the app of your choice we will be at the grid edge world forum doing a live podcast in san jose california in late june make sure to check out gtm events to learn more about that and we always love those live shows so and our audience seems to like them as well so hopefully you can make it to that and that's going to be a major three-day event with an expo and it's going to be all the biggest international utilities and grid edge companies here in the u.s well, thanks to Catherine and Jigger. Catherine, go rewatch Comey. I guess he's still probably sitting there in front of in front of Congress. So you can go back to your your TV now.
1: Great. Thanks. I hope you guys have a great rest of your week.
0: And Jigger, good luck with that uh, exercise room there. Get some crunches <laughs> in. You know,
2: <laughs> some power walk, lifts.
0: Yeah, some power lifts. Walk around the the empty room for a little bit. Pace. Um, well. Good talking to both of you. We'll catch you next week with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang.